0: I think this is a nice last deep breath of fresh air before
1: we literally descend into madness. It's as
2: though that evil that encases women has now encased the whole town.
1: The end of this episode is incredibly satisfying and terrifying, the sound and the lighting is really incredible.
3: All of these characters are so intoxicated by the promise of the unknown that they're just diving in blindly at great risk to themselves.
0: Welcome back, dear listeners, and welcome back to Back to the Double R. Come and wrap yourselves in a clear plastic raincoat, and let's put on a show. Because this week, we talk about Season 2, Episode 21, Miss Twin Peaks. And we'd like to offer just a bit of a caveat here. Um, This is the first part of the Season 2 finale, which was originally broadcast as two parts. This week and uh, next week, when we talk about Beyond Life and Death, we will spoil like a very, very few minimal things uh, that happen in the finale episode, particularly in my section where we're going to talk about Nadine. So um, if you want the full experience, uh, go back and watch both parts and uh, we will, uh, you know, come join us here when you're done. I can't imagine anyone that would watch this episode and hit the pause and be like, we'll come back to, you know, the finale later that seems incongruous. So uh, hopefully you're all caught up and we're good to go. I'm Jonathan and by George, I think you've got it.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer. And which way is the castle?
2: I'm Colin and I feel completely refreshed and struck again by the realization that all of us on this great big planet Earth live at only a fraction of our potential.
3: I'm Damon and where there's a key, there's a lock. This week on Twin Peaks, it is a night of decisions as the town crowns the next Miss Twin Peaks. Likewise, Lucy also makes an important decision. Donna has a chat with her father. Audrey sticks up for the environment. Annie invokes Chief Seattle. Dick Tremaine acts magnanimously, but with some relief. Andy has to tell Agent Cooper about what he has discovered. At the end of the puzzle box, the Martell clan finds a key. Nadine uses a carousel to get nostalgic. And as Miss Twin Peaks is crowned, the log lady initiates mayhem.
0: Folks, do we have any regrets? I have a little itty bitty one. I think in a couple episodes ago, I was talking about um, how like Norma and Dick Tremaine, and I think the mayor were, you know, talking about all the qualities of the the, the uh, potential winners they wanted to see in Miss Twin Peaks, I jumped the gun because that happens in this episode. So, you know, like we say, sometimes these episodes tend to sort of, you know, mix around in your brain. And I am sorry if that was a bit of a spoiler for anyone. Uh, episode 28, uh, which is known by actually two titles. Um, the The original German translation is called The Night of Decision. And it was, I think, the fans that really kind of pushed to have it uh, named Miss Twin Peaks. Of the two, I like Miss Twin Peaks better. So, uh, um, you know, that's how I kind of stand on it. Uh, The episode originally aired on June 10th, 1991. It was written by Barry Pullman, directed by Tim Hunter, and aired on the ABC Network. And like we previously said, basically part one of the finale. So if you originally watched... Uh, this episode back in 91 as i did you would have seen like an extended credits and all these types of things but if you're watching it on streaming or on dvd they do end up sort of piecing it out so that is uh you know one thing to uh sort of keep in mind there's also um and we might touch on this when we get to season three but a lot of characters have their very last uh you know time in twin peaks um most notably from the main cast, uh, Piper Laurie. Uh, uh, this is her last episode because she does not show up in uh, the finale. So uh, that's sort of the main cast member who we get the wave goodbye to, along with a lot of other minor ones. So, uh, but, you know, in the sake of maybe not spoiling that, we will, um, you know, just leave that one there for, you know, Piper Lori, which we may or may not see again, but did not film anything more for, uh, Pe- for Twin Peaks. Oh, I also wanted to mention um, as part of the sort of cancellation process of the show, and it did get canceled in April of 91 in the early part of that month, um, ABC like didn't uh, provide a on-set photographer. So they were really kind of running a bare bones operation with the, you know, the sort of the Frost Lynch productions and uh, none other than Richard Boehmer himself, who had like a really fancy camera at the time. Uh, was the one who took, like, some of the on-set pictures. And if you've never seen that photography, first of all, like, Baymer is really, really amazing with his camera. has a lot of really striking images and a lot of really cool ones because he goes sort of behind the scenes with some of the stuff that happens in the next episodes. You can really see, like, you know, sort of almost like a ramshackle production. It's really, like, uh, uh, you know, interesting, like... You know how you know small some of those scenes are when you're looking at like oh okay here's what it looked like in sort of the warehouse where they filmed you know all the parts of Twin Peaks and so you know really really insightful and just really really gorgeous a lot of great contrast in those black and white images easily available anywhere online to like look at if you look at like uh, you know Richard Bamer Twin Peaks you know photography or season two photography you know type it into most search engines and you should get you know most of those pictures and I'd say there's a good like three or four dozen of them floating around out there and it's some of the best twin peaks imagery you know you will you know stumble upon if you're floating around doing some research on the internet
1: i wanted to start off our discussion today by talking a bit about god and spirituality and throughout twin peaks we have had generalized references to spirituality which we've talked about on this podcast before and that includes heaven and hell good and evil, the afterlife. And as now we're racing towards the finale of season two, we see Ben Horn contemplating goodness and searching for guidance among the world's religions. He makes an entrance, carrying the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Talmud, the Bible, and Tao Te Ching saying somewhere in here are the answers that I seek. And I intend to read them from cover to cover. But then on the other end of the spectrum from from Ben, who is looking for goodness, we have Wyndham Earl. And at the beginning of this episode, our first introduction to Wyndham Earl this week is, is, is him looking absolutely demonic. He's got this gray pallor, bloodshot eyes, wild hair, and it looks like he has black or rotting teeth. And it's like he's crawled out of a grave, like the undead. And we know he's on a quest for dark power. And creepily, after Major Briggs is let loose from Earl's lair, he's asked if Wyndham Earl kidnapped him. He says he was God, I suppose. And it reminds me of this warning that I heard as a kid to not use the Ouija board as it might let the devil in. And a short time after I heard, when I was a kid, a short time after I heard this local psychic on TV admonishing people not to play with a Ouija board... I was in fact playing with a Ouija board with my friends, and we asked who we were speaking to, and the Ouija board replied, God. And I was petrified when that happened because I had heard that (laughs) psychic make that warning. And I'm not even religious, but I was still terrified that perhaps we let in this evil power. I was sure that it was the devil disguising himself as God. And, And so that to me brings a bit to mind Briggs, thinking that Wyndham Earl was God, And Briggs was in a drug-induced stupor there. He he was probably hallucinating. But as we know, dreams and visions should not be ignored in Twin Peaks. And and we also know there's a lot to be concerned about. Uh, Cooper is worrying about Earl's journey to the Black Lodge. And he says, if I am correct in my assumptions about the power of this unholy place, God help us if he gets there first. So, with all this talk of good and evil, the unholy and God, I'd love to hear what the rest of you make of not only Wyndham Earl's temporary change in appearance, because we just see him looking gray and demonic at the beginning of the episode. Um, so I'm curious what you think about that, but also why you think in Briggs's Haloperidol induced, when he's you know um, under the influence of Haloperidol, why is he seeing Wyndham Earl as God? Why might he see him as God? And and what do you think is going on with Earl in that moment? Why does he appear different in just that part of the episode?
2: So I think this is really well laid out. I think I think you caught a lot of uh, good and evil references that kind of slipped by me. And I was, <laughs> I was sort of looking for them. Um, but you have laid out a really nice sort of structure here and asked a couple of great questions as per usual. Um so, a couple things. I think uh we can remember back to uh, uh Major Briggs's uh vision of something like heaven that he has the the grand Palazzo and the rooms, uh, you know, there are more rooms now than there were before, and everyone's at peace. um that was really moving, and there's something there's something there that suggests that, um, you know, he's in tune with the white lodge and, and the energy, uh, of love. And, um, so, uh, him having some of this mixed into his perceptions of what's going on, uh, might, might make sense, but it is interesting. Why would he see someone as sort of, dark and diabolical as Wyndham Earl uh, as God. Um, Maybe uh, it's an old Testament, new Testament thing. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, But I did want to comment on Earl's uh, appearance there for a moment at the beginning, which I thought was super fantastic and super creepy. It totally worked on me. So in that moment, he's holding Uh, a bag of and we will later learn what is in the bag and he's addressing um he's addressing leo and um i i you know what he 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 drops the bag and his mouth is is black and his skin is that pale gray it's so effective and i think there's a you know i think you could you could argue that um Leo is kind of in an altered state too he's been wandering around in a dream fugue of his own and so he may be touched with uh some sight in this moment as well the way that uh uh, Sarah Palmer was when she was drugged and had visions that we think were not just hallucinations but were you know iconic of the of the powers um and you know visually the thing that it reminded me of just very briefly was in Christopher Nolan's uh, movie, Batman Begins. There's a moment when uh, the city has been uh, uh, drugged by the scarecrow and the water supply. And uh, uh, you know, they're chasing all around Gotham. And I think uh, uh, Batman has the scarecrow or has somebody and Batman is appearing as a demon. And his cowl, you know, is gone and he just is the bat ears. And one of the creepiest things about that is the mouth is black and his eyes are are bloody red. And that really, um, you know, I, I, that whatever they are both tapping into and in creating that, that is really one of the scariest uh, sort of deep archetypes Jungian or otherwise, I'm not sure. So I think that's kind of what's going on there.
3: This is a moment that's always really struck me too. And I have two possible explanations for it. One of them um, is kind of riffing a little bit off of something that Colin just said, um, which is that you know maybe Leo is experiencing some kind of heightened or altered perception. I want to call back to last episode, when I, we talked about how um, everybody's ha- a lot of people had um, sort of spasms or shaking in their hands as um, you know the the portal opening seems to be affecting people around town and we saw um, both Leo and major Briggs having full-on seizures actually it, it would have appeared um, as a result of those same um, those same energies right so it may be that that's a product of, uh, you know, the sort of heightened impact that, that this is having on Leo. Uh, alternatively, it could be that this is how um, it's that, that energy that's causing some people's hands to shake. And, um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, Cooper's vision of the giant and the various other sorts of um, sort of uh, responses that people are having having to the fact that this door uh, is opening. Um, maybe that's how it is impacting Wyndham Earl, right? Instead of getting tremors in his hands, it's altering his temporarily altering his physical appearance in this way, perhaps because he is, you know, so thoroughly steeped in in evil, that's just how it's affecting him. Um, as far as Briggs' comment about him being God, I have to confess I've never been able to make any sense of that. Um, but he's saying a lot of things in that scene that don't make sense about the King of Romania and stuff. So um, I kind of always just let that go. But it is, you know, now that you've raised it, it's a um, it's a question that I would like to spend some more time with.
0: I wrote in my notes that Earl looks like a wraith. You know, when he has the he's like he's got like that undead pallor and his you know the black teeth and the eyes mm-hmm. and the hair all crazy. But it, like, and I couldn't tell if it's just one of the parts of the show where, again, they kind of like do something cool with Earl and like leave it undeveloped or if we're supposed to maybe connect the dots that like perhaps he's, you know, undergoing some sort of a demonic or an evil possession, which would not be out of character here in Twin Peaks as we've clearly spent like, you know, the first 17 episodes sort of unraveling a possession in, you know, in regards to Bob and Leland. So, you know, I don't know if that's the case, but like they show his face and then like, you know, about five minutes later, you know, when he's talking to Leo and he's, you know, has another one of his sort of, you know, James Bond villain monologues, you know, he's back to looking more normal. So I don't know if it's just something that they decided would like look scary and cool that they didn't sort of follow up on, or if, you know, Earl is sort of tapping into some sort of powers that he can, you know, turn off or on, you know, it's either lazy writing or the show never explains it. So you can kind of go with either one of those uh, things there in terms of Leo, I think he actually comes to like a moment of lucidity. I think there's a lot of less sort of like Earl sway over him and he's really focused on those cards, right? What does he say to Briggs? He says, save Shelly. So, you know, you're maybe getting another one of those sort of last minute, like, uh, you know, villain sort of, you know, Hey, do we have sympathy for this character? You know, are we going to, you know, perhaps look at Leo in a slightly different light. Now these sort of come to his senses, you know, but you know, either way, I think a good way to sort of kick off the episode and maybe get a few of those, you know, questions brewing in our brains about what exactly is going on here.
1: To me, it's also a possible hint that we have Bob lurking. So this could be a visual representation of Bob. You know, we don't know if Bob has taken another human form, and and so it has me wondering it when we see this transformation, this temporary transformation of Earl, and and the more we talk about. The God comment. I'm wondering if it's simply that that Briggs is is feeling the power in this moment, and and we you know we've been talking a lot about how evil and good, the dark you know the dark place and the light place both have tremendous power, and so it might be that 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 Briggs is sensing the power there, and that's why he's sensing God, but it's but it's clearly a very different power.
3: I'll keep this vague um, because I don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't seen it yet. But in Fire Walk With Me uh, in a few weeks, we're going to see a character who um, Bob is attempting to possess undergo similar sort of temporary... Transformations of their facial features, at least in the eye of some beholders. So, um, so you may be on to something there, Jennifer. And um, we should bring this, um, we, should, we should circle back around to this when we talk about Firewalk with me.
0: Folks, in my section, uh, I'm going to explore the theme of Prelude to Tragedy. And we are going to focus on the character of Nadine Hurley as played by Wendy Roby. Uh, You guys know the drama mask, right? You know, you you see it in, you know, sort of depictions of literature all the time. Like, you know, one half is the smiling face, one half is the sad face. So perhaps no episode of Twin Peaks better embodies that image than Miss Twin Peaks. For a long, long stretch of this episode, there's a heavy emphasis on sort of lighthearted comedy. Most of it centering on the preparation and staging of the Miss Twin Peaks pageant. You know, some viewers might question why so much of the runtime of this episode is filled with frivolity, but I think given what we're about to see and Beyond Life and Death, I think this is a nice last deep breath of fresh air before we literally descend into madness. Um, I thought this episode was a lot like Drive with the Dead Girl uh, from, you know, a couple months ago back. We talked about it sort of sandwiched between, you know, lonely souls where we see, you know, Laura's killer revealed and then arbitrary law where they have the reckoning with Leland, you know, in that episode, I think there was, you know, kind of an emphasis on absurdism and humor. And I think we all thought it was a really sort of nice sort of breath of fresh air, right. A little Susan before, you know, we go back into something really, really heavy. This episode, I think functions very, very much the same. Um, And um, there's like a lot of really great details in the pageant that, you know, I mean, first of all, like every contestant is literally like wrapped in plastic and um, you know it, like it's you know that's important because uh, you know Annie sort of at the beginning of the episode like actually invokes Laura. She's like, hey, you know what about Laura, right? Which kind of I think kind of brings everything full circle. Um, and you know if you watch the dance, there's a lot of really funny stuff going on. I, I think some of the actresses at that point were kind of like not really into it. So if you watch like in the very, you know, far right of the frame, you'll see uh, Laura Flynn Boyle and like Mace and Imick And they're literally like kind of just doing whatever the hell they want. Uh, like at one point there's like, like, like Donna's head is like the very, very like lower right corner of the frame. And she's like smoking cigarettes. <laughs> uh, so there's like, you know, so there's like room for like all these little funny details. And it's great that they like give Kimmy Robertson a showcase to show her like really, really impressive dancing, And um, I think like the, the sort of contortionistic jazz exotica is like kind of a dud, but still kind of like fits in thematically what, you know, what's been going on with some of the, you know, the Twin Peaks humor. Um, And then, you know, they put in a lot of earnestness too, right? I think, um, you know, when Annie like gives her speech and when Audrey gives her speech, you know, I think those are moments of like, you know, the writers, I think perhaps maybe getting some issues off their chest or really, you know, taking things seriously. And it's nice because you even see like someone like Dick Tremaine, who, you know, he even calls himself Craven in this episode, right? He says he has a change of heart. Uh, um, so, you know, I think some people might find that it's strange, but I think it's ultimately, you know, kind of successful because it's because it's good that we get some moments to sort of laugh and smile and, uh, you know, th- like have fun with the show before we really get into, you know, some places that I don't think anybody would expect to go, uh, even in, you know, Twin Peaks, where you're supposed to sort of expect the unexpected. I think no character in Twin Peaks embodies sort of comedy and tragedy so thoroughly as Nadine Hurley, um, like amongst the four of us, I'm probably most enthusiastic about Wendy Roby in this role. And um, I mean, she just really, really goes for it. And, you know, she never sort of wastes like any opportunity she has on screen, be it like, you know, like one line, like I'm thinking back to the season one finale when she just says goodbye after she takes, you know, the pills and her suicide attempt. And, you know, even the little itty bitty moments she gets, you know, here and there, she's never, like, not interesting or not, uh, 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 like, sort of, you know, giving, like, a 100% effort. I mean, I know, like, you know, she can be an acquired taste. And they you know, like, Damon, you're not a fan of her storyline with Mike Nelson. Uh, you know, it's the, the, there's definitely, like, a lot of ick factor, even though I think yeah, Gary Hersberger, who's, you know, quietly been better and better as that story goes along. Uh, but, you know, Nadine's sort of the character that on the rewatch has grown the most in my estimation, right? It's, you know, someone that I maybe felt, indifferent about but now i'm like wow that's really like you know part of the heart of the show is all this stuff with nadine so you know in the episode she has a scene where um she you know is doing a slideshow to um, showcase her sort of championship wrestling exploits um it made me think of a scene in Mad Men, um where if you watch that show the 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 season one finale heavily centers on uh, like a slide carousel, right? And like Don Draper makes this really great presentation that evokes nostalgia. So when they showed this here, I'm definitely thinking, ah, you know, Frost and Lynch and co, they're definitely sort of tapping into like that nostalgia again. And it's, you know, fun because you get to see, you know, Nadine. and she's really proud. She has a smile on her face. And, you know, she's like so happy to tell everyone about, oh, I pinned this guy and I won these trophies. But then, you know, we kind of pull back the curtain and it's like Dr. Jacoby's there and it's like, oh, this is a way to hims to sort of, you know, finagle that like, well, you know, you need to tell everyone that, you know, we're getting a divorce. And like once sort of the jig is up, you see Wendy Roby's face like, like change. And she's like, well, Mike and I are getting married too. And she squeezes the poor guy's hand almost off and he screams, you know, so uh, um, it's, it's, you know, a scene that ends with like a lot of uncomfortability and awkwardness as uh, uh, sort of in true like Twin Peaks fashion. And I think it's important that they kind of focus on Nadine, You know, once uh, the Wyndham Earl, disguised as a log lady, like ignites, you know, sort of ignites the chaos of the pageant, and um, you know, the sandbag falls her head, and it sets up what happens in the finale. Which you know, she wakes up from her amnesia and she remembers, you know, sort of who she really is. You know, oh, I'm a thirty, you know, five year old woman now, no longer a high school girl, and it basically just sort of like dooms and ends the romance between Big Ed and Norma, which is you know, really, really this sort of a sad ending for, you know, all of like those characters. And, you know, I remember when we talked about Slaved and Masters, uh, that like how Diane Keaton was really able to bond with Roby over sort of her interpretation of Nadine and that like, you know, really, this is a tragic character, you know, at the heart of everything, right. Not, you know, someone that's there simply, you know, for laughs. And so, uh, uh, You know, kind of I think, you know, when you have any, you know, telling people about Laura Palmer at the beginning, it's really sort of priming the the show to explode in some tragedy. So my question for you guys is, are there any other characters who embody both halves of that drama mask as well as Nadine does? You know, is Roby? do you think it's a successful performance in sort of, you know, getting sort of the comedy and the tragic side in there? You know, what is she doing that makes it work? And uh, what other ways did the show balance comedy and tragedy, you know, between the characters and the scenes?
1: It's, I mean, this character's not overtly comedic. I guess Nadine isn't overtly comedic. This, as a viewer, we find it comedic. Um, But the log lady kind of functions in that way too, where, you know, as a viewer, you see her as quirky and um, but you know, that there's tragedy behind it with the loss of her husband. So it's another character where I, I completely, I enjoy seeing her on the screen. I enjoy her dry wit and a lot of the comedy in twin peaks is this more understated comedy. Um, And so I think it works really successfully with Margaret's character too.
2: I would say that um, both uh, Ben and Audrey do sort of complete one eighties over the course of the two seasons. Um, And in particular, this, uh, this seems very evident in this episode where, as Jennifer noted, <laughs> Ben has his hands filled with the good books of the world religions, you know, which is the last thing you would expect to have seen uh from uh, that first episode of the pilot where they're uh you know trying to do the Ghostwood land deal and even, even to a greater degree, um, Audrey, uh, maybe it's not, maybe it's not exactly both sides of, of the, the comedy tragedy, uh, thing. Um, but Audrey has, has completed a really interesting transformation here. She has gone from sort of that high school sex pot, uh, agent of chaos figure from early in the show and through all of her tribulations, as we were talking about, you know, I think in the last episode, you know, she has sort of grown so much and here uh, we see her in, you know, this gorgeous flowing dress positioned, uh, gazing into the fire in a very sort of classical tableau, um, to me it looks like a maxfield parish painting of you know some kind of goddess uh, and I'll throw in a link to Maxfield parish you'll recognize um you know as these beautiful um, uh paintings sort of uh modernizing Greek imagery um, in the early 20th century uh and uh you know even Ben says to her that uh you know you're you make the rest of us mere primates you know and uh of course humans are primates <laughs> so he's saying she has you know um ascended she has uh risen to another level um and this was why i sort of uh, you know i thought that there might be a bigger role for her to play in um in the end of the episode but uh nevertheless um you know, I think, I think that transformation along with the ones that you've mentioned. Um, and I, th- I, I would co-sign what you say about Wendy Roby here, Jonathan, she does an amazing job and makes the most of what could otherwise be a pretty thankless role.
3: Not necessarily so much because he's undergone any kind of change, but a character that I think uh, embodies both sides of that sort of tragedy comedy dichotomy is actually Agent Cooper. Um, you know, when we first meet Agent Cooper, um, he's, he's just this quirky guy. He's got these weird kind of ways of operating that everybody thinks are kind of strange. And, you know, he's kind of obsessively fastidious and has these just, you know, weird ways of being in the world that are very funny. Um, but what we learn about him as the series progresses is that, you know, he's a guy who's actually seen a lot of trauma um, he's a lo- he's a quite lonely character I think when you get when you get right down to it um, he has that realization himself uh, when speaking to um, Diane via his tape recorder about Annie and how uh, I think he's says gray and cold his life has been and so I think he's a great example of this actually because you know at first glance he's he's just this kind of kooky quirky guy who's who's like funny and loves food and, um, (laughs) you know, all of this other stuff. But uh, he's got this tragic history with Caroline and, um, you know, is a lot of what we see from him over the course of the series uh, seems to be, in some instances at least, sort of a smokescreen to cover up the, the sort of inner pain that he's dealing with.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, bringing it back home to Cooper is, you know, really smart because, you know, a lot of these characters, I mean, I think people fall in love with Twin Peaks because the characters are so quirky or they're so, you know, incongruous or it's, you know, so strange. And and I think people are, they're like attracted to strangeness. And, you know, when I, you know, watch the show again and Damon, you're 100% correct. It's like a lot of these people's, you know, quirks or their eccentricities, you know, act as sort of. You know, masks to hide pain and tragedy. It's it's you know very very I think you know classic in that regard, right? Where you know it's it's the you know the image that these characters are presenting to the outside world. I think is really doing a lot of work to to sort of you know bottle up or mask like a lot of internal you know turmoil that they're all going through. And you definitely get that with Nadine, and you definitely get it with Cooper. Yeah, you definitely get it with you know Audrey and a lot of the other characters. It's it's you know one of the sort of the you know, the secrets of the show laid bare as we're, you know, wrapping up season two for now.
2: So in this episode, I really loved the final scene, the big attack by Wyndham Earl. And for me, this is the eruption of the evil that we have been seeing lurking in the woods uh, coursing through the town uh, in the waterfalls blowing through the trees in this episode at the pageant at the hands of wind with the door to the black lodge open. We basically see uh, the full eruption of evil into twin peaks. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. There's sort of a parallel here to the, um, uh, the panic that we saw previously, but it's a far more serious and deadly panic than uh, the one with Pinkle's Pine Weasel. Um, and the stakes are decidedly higher than uh, getting bitten on the nose. Um, in this assault, uh, we see the flickering lights. And uh, for me, that calls back to the very first episode to the pilot where, uh, they're in the examination room, the lights famously flicker. Um, and, you know, like an evil tide, this energy is coming back in, except this time it's crashing onto, uh, Twin Peaks happy little annual event. Uh, and, it is carrying in when the as this avatar of darkness and this caustic crackling energy, we see flames, there's smoke, we hear screams, people running. Um, you know, Jonathan, I thought, uh, it was a fantastic insight and I can't believe I missed it. That all the women are wrapped in plastic. Uh, as they're as they're dancing i mean dear heavens that is uh right on the nose about what we've always been saying right about you know this being a show about what um what society does to women um and you know in this in this episode as well uh the forest of Twin Peaks itself is wrapped in plastic it, there's there's sort of a plastic wrapped forest that's on the stage, and people are running between trees that are in the same kind of thing, and it's as though that evil that encases women has now encased the whole town um where Leland once rode Laura's coffin up and down between the surface and what lies below Earl um who here comes from the woods. He comes from the past. He comes from behind masks. He comes from the rafters from up above and he comes from our deepest fears. He, he rides this eruption of evil, like a dugpa and spirits away. The night's queen, precisely like any fairy tale would, would have, Um, you know, and I, I just would add one, little note to our conversation about his appearance at the beginning, um, since the epistemology of, of Tibetan uh, deities is invoked, um, there is a, uh, there is um, sort of a, a, an extensive understanding of um, uh, threatening and dangerous uh, deities uh, there, there are often good deities that have a dark appearance. Um, and, you know, in, uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, the, the evil appearance is actually evil to scare away our ignorance and so on. Um, but there is sort of this, this twinning of, uh, you know, a hero like Cooper, who is all put together, who represents order, who is meditating in this episode, and feeling refreshed. And on the other side, we see the corruption of the FBI agent, Wyndham Earl, who is disheveled and is now, you know, becoming physically corrupted. So, so it's this beautiful thing. Um, and it is not super different from the pine weasel situation. We do have the kidnapping of Annie Blackburn, um, who's, name suddenly makes me think of like you know a scorched electrical explosion or uh you know a burnt forest or something like that um i i'm not sure i knew her last name was blackburn but in any case um so my question is is this a a suitably evil climax for a show that has made its bones on gothic absurdism you know clearly we know that that we have more to come, but for the town itself, this is kind of what, you know, they, they will see what they will experience. So is this narratively satisfying uh, for this part of the big finish? And, and my other question as an alternate, if you wish, is why does Earl choose the log lady to duplicate? You know, we're seeing doubles here. Why does he choose her? And uh, where does she vanish to? If we
0: want to look at this as sort of Miss Twin Peaks and Beyond Life and Death as, you know, like a five act Shakespeare play. Right. You know, I think that, you know, this is sort of our sort of our act three scene one. Right. In a classical Shakespearean structure, you get your climax right at the middle of the play, all the rising action, the climax and a big denouement, which I think we're going to see you know, when we talk about Beyond Life and Death next week. So for me, it like, it makes perfect sense. And I do, you know, my first theme for the episode was, you know, the gang's all here, right? Because you do kind of get, like, everyone gathered up in the roadhouse. I mean, most of the major players in, you know, the show have a role, you know, in this episode. So there is sort of a gathering of, like, all the cast in one place and, you know, a big, like, igniting event that's going to, you know, send us into the you know, conclusion of the show. And for the longest time, it was the conclusion of the show. So I think it is, you know, sort of a nice classical structure in, you know, getting us, you know, back into thinking, you know, more of the, you know, the Shakespearean modes, you know, this show has been flirting with the whole time. And I mean, you know, if you're, you know, wanting to look at comedy and tragedy, right, you look at, you know, a play like Romeo and Juliet, which is like literally for like half the play, basically like a comedy. And then there's, a big inciting tragic event and it just sort of spirals out from there so yeah we're you know talking really classic stuff um my bit with the log lady um i think it's maybe earl's best disguise <laughs> he looks great in drag uh, uh like and like you know bobby who again shouldn't think right like you know he's thinking and you know, it gets himself into trouble here uh, uh but you know i don't blame him for thinking that you know that, that it's the log lady because i mean like one Catherine colson is like really tall and i don't know how tall uh, I, you know kenneth welsh is but like, it, you know, it, it It can easily fool people. And I think the first time I saw it, I was definitely fooled until you, like, look and you're like, oh, crap, that's Earl. And and so, you know, it might be his most effective disguise from the master of disguise in this show. And it was, I think, a really nice touch. Um, as for where the Log Lady went, I mean, who knows? She, you know, she marches to the beat of her own drummer, right? And, and it's not like she doesn't show up, you know, next week. So ugh, Log Lady just always is doing her own thing.
1: I really enjoyed that the log lady that Pinkle was flirting with a log lady at the bar. Like that was so bizarre. And, and it was fun to see, this has nothing to do with evil, but it's fun to see all the iterations of Pinkle that he was the choreographer in this episode, just super strange. And I had flashbacks to, you know, some sort of awards ceremony where we had Rob Lowe in um, like a snow white sequence. That's what I thought of when I saw the whole, uh, you know, clear umbrellas on stage. I mean, the, the end of this episode is incredibly satisfying and terrifying. And I think that the sound and the lighting and the um, sort of a seizure inducing scene um, is is really incredible. So I'm satisfied.
3: Yeah, I was going to actually um, call out the log lady and pink hole moment as well. And as far as where the log lady went, I can only imagine she left to get away from him. Um, (laughs) but as far as the, the, um, the scene itself, uh, I, I agree with Jennifer. I think it's, it's very satisfying. The fact that it, um, has echoes of the pine weasel panic, I think is actually appropriate because we've talked a lot about doubling over the course of the show. And this is almost like a dark version of the pine weasel scene. And I don't just mean dark in the sense that it's literally dark, although, I mean, it is. And I think, you know, Wyndam Earl coming through the fog in the Log Lady costume with that maniacal grin on his face and the strobe light is utterly terrifying, uh, you know, worthy of any uh, any horror film. But it's also dark in just that, that the stakes are so much higher. We know they're so much higher. We're watching Cooper deal with this, with, you know, very, I think, con- conflicting feelings about, the fact that Annie has won this contest, which he himself encouraged her to join, not knowing that it was putting her at mortal peril. Um, And, uh, you know, so I think for all the reasons that both Jennifer and Jonathan enumerated, I I think this is absolutely uh, a satisfying sort of um, punctuation as far as what the, the town of how the town of Twin Peaks itself is going to be part of this narrative. And, um, I see that both of my co-hosts here are eager to talk. So I'll try to button this up really quickly, but I want to call back one more time. Um, well, not for the last time, certainly, but uh, to, <laughs> to you know, this sort of argument that I've been making since we started this podcast um, about the central theme of the show being the impact of trauma, right? And what we are seeing now is how the events that, uh, you know, led to, Cooper coming to Twin Peaks in the first place, i.e. the murder of Laura Palmer, and in so doing led to Wendell Merle coming to town in the first place. And, you know, many of these other happenings unfolding, we're now seeing that basically like destroy this longstanding tradition of the town in a moment of chaos and violence that no one in this, um, in the roadhouse that night is ever going to forget.
1: That you mentioned doubling. I think well, a number of us have mentioned doubling and at least else. two. <laughs> yeah, at least two. Um there was some other doubling that I noticed in this as we're talking about Miss Twin Peaks, um, in the costuming with the bow ties and the garters. Um it took me straight back to one eyed jack's the the costumes were very oh, reminiscent of yeah. that, which you know, that is a very creepy place as well. Bad things are happening to women there and there was a lot of death and murder and evil people. Um, and, and also, so when Audrey was, was trapped at one-eyed Jack's, she was, she had a card affixed to her. That was the queen of diamonds. And at the time I thought that was really strange. Like I was thinking, why isn't she the queen of hearts? I don't know. Um, so it's very interesting. I noticed in this episode that Wyndham Earl has Audrey's face in the queen of hearts. And so that's another parallel. Um,
0: I, you should rewatch it. Cause Audrey is the queen of diamonds uh, uh, up on there. It, oh,
1: oh, that's what I meant. I expected her to be the queen of hearts in Jack's, but she was the queen of diamonds and she's again, the queen of diamonds in this scene. Okay.
2: So. I'm, I'm, having an idea live on the pod. <laughs> These are the so, best ones
3: sometimes.
2: Yeah, yeah, go for it. So, okay. You, you put it all together for me, Jennifer. Tell me if you buy this. The reason that Audrey is the queen of diamonds is that she is the character who is put under, in some senses, the greatest pressure. And she comes out as something sparkling beautiful ascendant hard as uh as a diamond um and her transformation is all about pressure turning you into something uh uh more beautiful than you were before
1: sure i'll buy that (laughs) all right i mean i always just
2: figured because she's rich (laughs) (laughs) well there's that
1: too I mean, I think in this moment, I'm thinking that it's just causing us to think back to, to One-Eyed Jacks. Um, and it, you know, it's, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about Earl and has he, if he's Bob and if he's been around all along and where does the evil lurk? And so having, having the Queen of Diamonds come back again, I think can't be an accident.
0: Well, and, you know, I just wanted to add a couple of, like, few brief things. One, I think it's, you know, no coincidence they asked Tim Hunter to come back and direct this episode, seeing as how he had, like, I mean, he directed my favorite episode of Twin Peaks of all time, uh, which is Arbitrary Law, which, again, had a lot of, like, sort of let's have a climactic moment filled with, like, strobe lights and weird effects at the roadhouse, right? So, you know, this is, a I think, a definite echo. And it's no coincidence that, you know, on stage, even though Audrey you know, it's not technically part of Twin Peaks. They're at the end when they're, you know, awarding, you know, who wins. She's right there, right? Our three queens are, you know, right next to each other and Audrey, Donna, and Shelly. So, you know, they put her up there and it's, you know, it's smart because they bring in all those like little itty bitty details. I also think like some of the stuff with Pinkle, like, Oh, man, I like you're like, man, Nadine is almost going to like like, you know, give this dude an airplane spin or something like that, man, because, you know, you're just like, ah, this guy is so like horrible, man. And just, you know, another, you know, in the long line of like men being horrible to women on this show. But I mean, it's a you know, it's a great moment for I think everything to sort of come together before we really get sort of the gangs all here and things coming together in the next episode.
3: You know, Jonathan, you pointed out that Audrey is not seemingly not part of the pageant and I that's something that's always struck me right is that we ne- we don't see her in this like choreographed dance routine um but she does give one of the speeches and yeah. you know I, I you know what kind of strikes me about that in light of the conversation we've been having about how there's sort of a resemblance here to one-eyed jacks is that she's kind of already been there and like done the thing where she has to wear the skimpy outfit and here it's just like maybe she just refused, you know? And and Audrey is the one participant in the pageant who I could imagine being able to just get away with that because her, one, her dad is Ben Horn and two, she's such a badass that she could just be like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you can judge me on my speech. Um, because, uh, you know, we do see her in the back with the other contestants who are, um, when they're announcing who the winner is going to be. So I think she's in the pageant. I think she just wouldn't, either because she registered too late and wasn't part of the choreography or because she refused to do it um, because of, you know, her, her, um, you know, previous experiences or what have you, I think she's just, uh, you know, she's in the pageant, but won't do the, won't do the bathing beauty routine as she calls it.
0: Yeah. I think, right. You, I think you're right on there.
1: Yeah. Cause she says earlier that she doesn't want to be a bathing beauty and And those are certainly, those costumes are certainly like high-cut bathing suits or underwear.
3: It's interesting to me this week how we have two almost parallel narratives unfolding on the show as uh, we have two sets of characters seeking keys to open locks or seeking locks to open with their keys. So in the literal sense, uh, of course, we have Pete, Andrew, and Catherine. Um, Andrew uses a handgun to open the final layer of Eckhart's puzzle box and um, in so doing reveals a large key, which almost immediately starts to create suspicion and treachery between the three characters. Uh, Likewise, and at the same time, Wyndham Earl has discovered that Fear is the key to open the door that he seeks, uh, the door to um, what he at least believes to be the Black Lodge. Similarly, uh, Cooper and his team at the sheriff's station um, are seeking the same door in an attempt to stop Earl. So there's two things that stand out to me here. Um, The first is that neither Earl nor the Packards and Martells really know exactly what is behind the doors that they seek to open. Both of them are hoping to unlock power of some kind. Um, Catherine has said that she hopes that whatever Eckhart has concealed from them is worth a fortune, while Earl obviously hopes to harness the supernatural powers of the Black Lodge for his own twisted empowerment. But we know, as do the characters, that Eckhart was a murderer and hated Catherine and the Black Lodge is populated by beings that will destroy you on a whim. And as we'll see um, next episode without going into detail, opening these doors is not gonna work out the way any of these characters exactly are hoping it's going to. But nonetheless, all of these characters are so intoxicated by the promise of the unknown that they're just diving in blindly at great risk to themselves. As Jennifer pointed out uh, in our conversation a few days ago about her predictions for the finale, there's definitely no guarantee that they're going to like what they find. And, uh, you know, only Cooper's team seems to know even exactly what they're seeking um, and why they're seeking their particular lock, and that's to stop Wyndham Earl not to open the door. They're the only ones that are not seeking some kind of personal gain. Um, and would actually prefer that the door that they are seeking stays closed. Um, Though, again here, as a side note, Cooper is one step behind in his effort to make this happen, as he has been for so long. Um, In this episode, they discover Wyndham Earl's bug, but only after Wyndham has already learned everything that he needs to know from them. Second. It strikes me that we could take this emphasis on keys and locks as a metaphor for our experience with the show so far. Our own experience of watching the episode this week, to me at least, feels like a third iteration of this locks and keys theme. For the last 28 episodes, we have been seeking to unlock the mystery of Twin Peaks and to see what is beyond the door or perhaps behind the red curtain or inside the puzzle box along with Cooper and the rest of his team. And with the newest revelations over the last couple of episodes, that key feels uh, tantalizingly close, like it could be within reach. And so, you know, we too as the audience are drawn to the unknown and we want to unlock its mysteries. But we've had warnings along the way about that. Uh, We've heard Cooper be warned by Hawk that visiting the place that Earl seeks to go can annihilate one's soul uh similarly donna unlocks the answers she's been seeking this episode and does not like what she finds at all for the viewer finally discovering the solution to the mystery to the mystery also has the potential not to destroy our souls but potentially to destroy the sense of wonder and mystery that attracted us to the show to begin with often as we seek answers we don't consider this possibility. We're just driven to discover the key, that will unlock the mystery. And I think Twin Peaks fans in particular are more devoted to this kind of quest than most uh, most fandoms are. This isn't the first time uh, that we've discussed the tension between wanting to know and the risks that come with Revelation. And uh, I suspect it won't be the last. We've been talking about this at least since we watched Arbitrary Law. And Colin spoke recently about the show as a puzzle box. But I think all this discussion of locks and keys this this week is taking this to another level. It's maybe the first time we see the characters on the show spell it out so explicitly themselves. The creators, to me, seem to be giving us a sort of warning. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful which doors you seek to unlock because you might be happier not seeing what's behind them. So as we near the end of the original run of Twin Peaks, and with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that, you know, the show is canceled and doesn't come back for 25 years, how much of the mystery do we as viewers really want to see revealed in the final episode? Do we want more answers, or would we prefer to keep at least some of them locked away?
1: Damon, I love that you bring up this tension, because... It's hard for me to even know how to answer this because i I agree with you that there's this human desire to want to know the answers. But then, as far as the structure of art and television shows, it's nice to leave some mysteries. so I, I think that's that's part of the whole thing with the show. and and what I think works for Twin Peaks is that you have these big mysteries, but you also have smaller mysteries. So, we're not gonna know everything. There are tiny things that aren't really that important to the whole story. Like why does Dick Tremaine have this accent if he was born in Twin Peaks, you know, with people thinking he might be from the Bahamas or somewhere in Europe. But, you know, we learned recently he was born in Twin Peaks and that's kind of tantalizing. Um, You know, there are mysteries to me about why there are family members like the Sisters of Donna that we haven't seen in so long. You know, why are they never at the dinner table? So I think that it strikes the right balance. I don't think we need to know everything. You know, there are a lot of mysteries around Josie that I don't know that we'll ever get the answer to, and that's okay. Um, so I, I I think I think the right balance is there.
0: And, you know, when I watched this episode, and I you know remember because Colin asked me in our discussion, uh, um, sort of what my experience was watching this when I was a kid, right? When I was ten years old. And, um, you know, I think when you go into any sort of serialized entertainment, be it a TV show or comic books or, you know, maybe like a long running like book series, I think there's an inherent bargain that struck between sort of creator and audience that, hey, at some point you're going to, you know, pay off what people have invested in and and. I think David Lynch and Mark Frost are explicitly screwing with like that expectation at both, I think in this episode, and especially in the finale, which we're going to talk about, you know, in our next week's discussion. And, you know, so then I'm like, well, what does that say about like Lynch and Frost themselves? Right. Because um, I recently in the Z to A box set, watched the whole sort of, you know, making of where they talk a lot about like, you know, these last two episodes and shooting the finale and what it was like, And, you know, I think both Lynch and Frost are coming from a place like frustration and pain because I think, you know, they had an idea of how, you know, this story would sort of, you know, play out or their vision for the thing. And of course, like ABC forced them to resolve the lore mystery. And then, you know, they introduced this other, you know, mysteries of like the Black Lodge and sort of the supernatural forces in the town. And, you know, it's a, you know, it's funny here that we finally get it like spelled out too, right where, you know, oh no, like this literally is like the evil in the world. Woods, right? Where you know Cooper like tells Truman that, like, no, that's you know, you're right, then you know, the whole time, right? This is what it's about. So, you know, it's tough because you know, me as like the guy whose favorite episode is arbitrary law, or like they literally like give you like answers on a silver platter, right? Uh, um, you know, like you know, I wanted that when I was a kid, and I think still when you watch you know, Twin Peaks, party, it's like, you know, I need to know what's going on at Black Lodge. I need to know what's going on with the White Lodge, right? Like, you know, some of the, like, I could care less about, like, The Moon or, like, Dick Tremaine or, like, any of those other mysteries. Like, you know, that to me is, like, ancillary stuff. But the big questions you kind of want, and I think you kind of almost deserve as a viewer or a fan or, you know, someone who's, you know, put some emotional investment into the show, right? Like, you know, that's what you want back, but they don't give it to you. So, you know, I think it's a really good, Sort of way to like reorient your mind, and like a good way to like look at stories differently, in the sense that you know, hey, it's okay to have some ambiguity. I, um, you know, I think of like you know shows that have came out in the wake of Twin Peaks, like you know, you look at Lost, and they didn't care about answering every single one of their mysteries, and they kind of like thumb their noses right at the audience, right? Or um, you know, not to spoil the Sopranos for everybody, but that ends on an extremely ambiguous note. Uh, 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 so you know, you know, I think creators were really empowered to like, sort of break these storytelling molds. And, you know, me as a 10 year old kid just was not ready for like my world to be shattered like that in some ways. Right. But, you know, with, you know, so 25 years in hindsight, you're like, okay, I'm glad I watched this because it, you know, gave me sort of the, you know, like you know, expectation that hey, you can be uncomfortable. You know, like it's okay to be uncomfortable at the end. You don't always have to have everything wrapped up in a bow. It's
1: it's sort of the difference. You know, you think about a Hollywood ending being an expected ending, but it's kind of the difference between watching a Lifetime movie, where you know, if you watch Lifetime movies, you know how they're going to end. um It's yep. you know, it and it's and that's a reason. Like there's comfort in jo- certain genres because. You can watch and you know everything's going to be resolved to your liking. Um, but then there's this, I don't know, I hate to elevate things as different levels of art, but you know, you watch other sorts of shows like Twin Peaks and part of the reason you're watching it is because you're going to be surprised.
2: You've said throughout uh, the podcast that the show is really working with genres and the idea of putting them next to each other. Bumping them into each other, spilling them over into each other, and seeing what happens. And sometimes you get magic and sparks, and other times you get a big mess. Um, At various times, they have leaned into uh, the genres or, uh, you know, uh, put too much uh, into some of the genre stuff. Uh, We were talking about uh the romance elements previously and so on and and the uh, the Evelyn Marsh narrative being sort of film noir but without any you know excitement to it um so we do definitely sort of have uh some expectations around that and i and you're exactly right jennifer genre is satisfying because we know uh or we have expectations um about who gets it in the end and you know you know from from fairy tales right on up to you know high operatic sci-fi you have some sense of you know which is lynch's world right from from uh you know from uh the wizard of oz to dune um you um you know, you, you always carry those expectations. Sometimes having them satisfied is exactly what you want and you get it or you don't. Sometimes having them twisted is exactly what you want and you get it or you don't. Um, This question is tricky, Damon, because I feel like I'm ready to start another hour long conversation about this, about this very question. Uh, So The only thing more I will say is I'm going to have a lot more to say about this next week uh, because I have opinions. You know, I think it is
0: like important note too, like, especially in regards to like the Andrew Martell part of this episode where, you know, he's almost sort of like Alexander great with the Gordian knot, right. He's just going to swing his sword right into the middle of that thing. And like, forget all about like the, you know, the process, like he's done at this point, right. He's like, I'm just going to take a gun and shoot this thing open. And, and, you know, I think to me, it's almost like Frost and Lynch and the craters are like having a backlash to like, you know, people's obsession with like wanting to know, I think that's definitely, Sort of, you know, why we see like Catherine, you know, like, hey, well, I'm just going to put the key in the in the cake saver. And, you know, let's, you know, let's see who blinks first. Right. I think that's, you know, Frost and Lynch, you know, sort of playing with us. Well, who's going to reach the key at their peril? You know, I, I, I it, 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 like it's a deliberate metaphor for, I think, sort of, you know, sort of being careful what you wish for. Which, you know, if we, you know, play out some of the strings of those, you know, plot threads, it, it ends really, really badly, and like not in a satisfying way at all.
1: And uh, you're playing, Jonathan, you're playing around with the relationship between um, Catherine and her brother. Andrew Packard. <laughs> you said Andrew Martell.
0: <laughs> oh that, yeah. He is a, he is a Packard. You know, I always think look she's the head of that family as far as I'm concerned. It's the Martell.
1: I love fan. it. Yeah.
3: Well, folks, this brings us once again to the twist and this being the spookiest month of the year, we've been doing a series of Halloween related twists that are also at least Tangentially connected to Twin Peaks. And this week, I'm going to ask my co hosts to each share one of their own personal, sort of creepiest experiences. Uh, You know, we've talked a lot about how Twin Peaks has sort of dabbled with um, horror as a genre. And uh, so, you know, this feels sort of uh, close enough to the right ballpark and certainly in the keeping of the season. So I'll kick us off. Um, And I think. My story sort of relates insofar as it um, involves men who are horrible and abusive, um, but is nonetheless uh, an interesting sort of creepy story. So when my um, step-grandfather died, um, this was the first experience that I had ever had with with the death of a, of a loved one that was close to me. Um, I didn't know when he was alive that he was actually a, a raging alcoholic who was like a really scary guy when um, my mom was growing up and um, was really violent towards my grandmother. Um, But I had really generally pretty positive experiences um, that I associated with their home, except for the basement always kind of creeped me out for some reason. And in particular, there was this back room that really scared me. Um, And I could never really put a finger on why I was a young kid. So Fast forwarding to the, uh, the Christmas after my step-grandfather, whose name was Earl, uh, passed away, uh, we all went over to my grandmother's house to help her decorate for Christmas. Um, and I was really anxious about that because two nights before, I had had a dream about that back room in the basement. Um, and in my dream, somebody had hidden a dead body in that room. And it was oh, kind of no. a junk room with a lot of weird stuff in there. So, you know, it was kind of easy to imagine um, uh, <laughs> hiding something of that size in that room. But I knew that was where the Christmas stuff was. Oh, and I had God. this really vivid dream. And so, you know, I am, of course, the one who's tasked with going down to get all no, the Christmas no, stuff no, out of no, the closet no. in this room.
2: Don't go down there. Don't go and down,
3: little Damon. I'm going down, and you know, I'm grabbing a box. Checking, make sure it's Christmas stuff, run up the stairs. You know, I go down, I grab a box, (laughs) check, make sure it's Christmas stuff, run up the stairs. I get down to the bottom of the closet, underneath all the Christmas boxes, and there's this small metal box. And uh, I go to open it to try to figure out if it's Christmas stuff. It's at the bottom, underneath all the Christmas stuff, right? Which presumably has been there since last Christmas. Um, And I I can't get it open. I give the box a little shake. And it makes this sound like, and I flip it over and there's a label on the box and it says Earl Grambo. It was his ashes. There was a dead body hidden in that room. Oh, Weirdly underneath all the Christmas stuff (laughs) that should have been packed away long before he died. One of the creepiest things that ever happened to me.
2: Whoa. I think that's it. I think, I mean, I can't top that. Holy moly. I'll
0: go. And I mean, I'm not the the one that like, like I can't really like recall ever having like any ghost experiences or like, you know, weird, creepy stuff happening, but um, I'll share two things. Um, One um, I uh, live in Wallingford, which is um, like a neighborhood like in Seattle that's just North of what's called the Aurora Bridge but is officially known as the George Washington Bridge and for the longest time uh, the George Washington Bridge was the number two uh, place in the world where there was the most suicides behind the Golden Gate Bridge because you could literally like walk onto that bridge and if you've ever, you know, seen it, especially if you're driving on like I-5 North in Seattle and like look West, like out toward the water, you get a sense of like how high this bridge is. And, you know, basically if you jump off it, you will die. There's, you know, really kind of no way around it. So for, um, you know, the longest time I rode the bus in Seattle, I rode it everywhere. So, you know, almost every day I would ride the 358, which is a, bus line that basically goes from downtown Seattle all the way to the, the uh, county line between King and Snohomish counties. And it goes up Aurora Avenue and it's kind of a notorious bus line, which is now known as uh, the E. But um, on that bus line, before I moved to Seattle, I think about a year before that bus actually had an accident where I, there was a shooting or something like that, where the bus like plunged over the bridge and like into an apartment building. And it was a huge, huge tragedy. Um, It's marked by, like, there's flowers and a marker if you, like, actually walk on the bridge by there. So, like, I've had many experiences on that bus where, like, I've seen strange things. Like, there was one time, like, you know, I was sitting next to a dude who came on the bus with, like, a parrot and, like, was, like, feeding him. Uh, um, There's been, I think, like, twice a couple of times where, like, I was literally, like one bus ahead of like a similar accident or a shooting. So that's always like been like, Oh man, I like caught the right bus at the right time. I also like met a girlfriend on that bus, like right as we're like going over like the Aurora bridge. So it was, a, uh, uh, you know, so I've had a lot of strange experiences with that bridge and just sort of like the crazy, like negative energy that it has. There's a much larger fence. So people like can't as easily like plunge to their deaths, but, I uh, uh you know, that's, you know, that's in Seattle. So if you you know ever want to get creeped out, you know, take a walk over the Aurora bridge and, you know, have fun with that. Um, I also had, uh, I, when I was a kid, I was probably 15 at the time I was on a boy scout hike and we were in the Olympic national park, which is like remote and like quite literally the middle of nowhere. Uh, we were up on this, uh, ridge called Hayden pass about 6,000 feet up. And this is like, I think late July or early August. So there's still snow on this mountain face. And I had probably like a 45 or a 50 pound backpack, probably a little too heavy for like, you know, someone my age and I didn't weigh nearly as much as I do now, but, um, I slipped and, uh, um, I literally was like sliding down the face of the mountain. And it, it was weird because like time, like almost like slowed down to the point where it like didn't exist. And I didn't seem like I was going like very fast and about to plunge to my death. But I distinctly remember like there was a cliff face on one side and like rocks to the, you know, to the other. And I just like aimed for the rocks and I kind of like climbed down and actually saved myself probably about 20 minutes of hiking. But yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, um, you know, the, you know, the adults in the thing like were terrified and were just like, Like, oh my God, I can't believe it happened. And like, you know, in the moment, it didn't really freak me out a whole lot, but upon reflection, I'm like, man, I can't believe I survived that. There there must've been a touch of divinity or, you know, something like that happening. Cause if I was less aware, yeah, I probably would have died.
1: My story is kind of has combination, has elements from both Damon and Jonathan's and because it's Partially a ghost story and partially has to do with a particular place. And in California, there's this road called the Pacheco Pass that has a lot of lore around it about car accidents and deaths, you know, going back to the olden days. And it was an und- undivided highway. Um, and my sister and I had embarked on this journey, this road trip to see my grandmother. And we were just at the beginning of the drive when a car was an undivided road, a car started kind of like a box truck sort of car. We saw it in our lane headed straight towards us. And I remember just being in complete shock, like what is going on? Why is this car in our lane heading towards us? And I was driving and I think I even articulated to my sister, it's not moving. And and that we barely had any shoulder to my right. And so I simultaneously veered to the right into this very small shoulder and, you know, slammed on the brakes. and, And we watched as the box truck continued in the same lane. It did not slow down. It did not move. This was... In the morning, there was no, um, there was no glare. There was no bad weather. There was nothing kind of impeding anybody's vision. And luckily I had enough room behind me so that, you know, nobody slammed into me and there was enough room for me to maneuver barely. And there was a car quite a distance behind me. And eventually this truck, before it reached that other car, it veered back over into its correct lane. And we were completely rattled by this and and we already knew that this was a spooky highway and and we had no logical explanation for, for why this truck was heading towards us. We thought if the driver was asleep, there would have been, they would have been swerving around maybe. They wouldn't have continued in the straight line towards us. It, it made no sense. The only explanation that made sense was that it was some sort of ghost truck with all of the knowledge that we had and, um, you know, we thought a lot about how this would have been a family tragedy with my sister and I potentially getting killed. I think my sister was pregnant too, so it just would have been this horrible situation um so that's my that's my creepy story. We survived our encounter with a ghost truck and ghost truck and early oh my God. <laughs> earlier in the episode, I mentioned this psychic who had terrified me of Ouija boards that was Sylvia Brown, who was <laughs> a local psychic um and I think I even mentioned our haunted Toys R Us recently too, in my childhood town. And and Sylvia Brown was somebody who talked about that haunted Toys R Us. Um, So I I think Sylvia Brown had also talked about the haunted Pacheco Pass.
2: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, So I recently moved and I spent a lot of time cleaning out my apartment And, uh, I, um, you know, worked really hard and as you, you know, it always takes longer than you think. And you always end up staying up all night, the last night to get all the last stuff. And I just, you know, I worked really hard. Um, I was exhausted. It had been super hot. It was the middle of the night. It was actually in the morning. It was, it was early in the morning. I had to be out, um, you know, on that day. So i pushed it right to the last minute. And I finally, finally got everything out and got everything cleaned and had one sort of last look er- around, see if I had forgotten anything. And I was standing there in my empty apartment and I realized that there was a cabinet that I had never opened because it was directly over the refrigerator. And I typically like throw some things on top of the refrigerator, cereal or whatever. And it was kind of hard to get to. And, and the entire t- like three, four years that I had lived there, I had never opened that cabinet. It was closed when I got there. And if I hadn't noticed it, it would have been closed when I left. Um, but you know, it's the middle of the night. I'm all alone. The building is quiet. Uh, There's nobody anywhere. And I reached in and I found something and I decided to keep it. And I didn't know why, but I felt compelled. I felt like I should have this thing. And then I am watching season two, episode 21, and I realized why I found <laughs> a glass cake saver.
1: Cake saver. <gasps> nice.
2: So, for uh, listeners, I have just produced a glass cake saver that is the virtual <laughs> twin. Uh, uh, it is the double of the glass cake saver in which Catherine Martell puts the key uh, that is going to play such a uh, an important role in the coming episode. So that was my creepy moment. I just had it the other day while I was watching this episode. I became terrified of this cake saver. I, <laughs> I was
0: I was I was really worried you're going to like pull Gwyneth Paltrow's
1: head out of that
2: cabinet no, or something yeah, like that. No, not that
1: bad. I, I have to say not that's bad. a very nice looking case, cake saver. I think that was. It was pretty nice that's a major score
2: strangely compelled i didn't realize that it was uh you know in my future so and they
0: probably haven't changed the design on a cake saver in like (laughs) what (laughs) a hundred years
2: this one could very well have been there since the 80s so uh you know who knows well that's our big finish friends for this penultimate episode of season two Everybody grab your umbrellas and head for the exits because it's only going to get weirder from here. You can always find every episode of our podcast, along with a variety of bonus content, at Back to the Double R. In fact, I'll put a picture of the cake saver, just so you know. Um, And a programming note, we're going to take a couple of weeks off over the holidays, and we put a schedule up at the website so you know what to expect. And if you want to join us as we look at some additional... Twin Peaks and David Lynch content, you'll have time to plan around that. So check the website back to the Please invite your Twin Peaks love friends to join in anywhere they get their podcasts. And as always feel free to email us at back to the at gmail.com. Share your thoughts about this episode and maybe your own epically creepy Halloween moments. You can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram please follow us there and as always pittsburgh silencio thank you for being the soundtrack to our lives next week we take on the season two and series finale at least until david lynch pulled some pine weasels out of his hat for my co-hosts damon jennifer and jonathan we'll see you in the other place